Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. We are grateful to you for being such amazing listeners. Thank you for your continuous support. While we record new podcast episodes with your favorite GPCR scientists, let's spend some time revisiting previous episodes as we enter the end of 2023 and we start a brand new year. We wish you and your families happy holidays and a wonderful new year. We're currently working on the Dr. GPCR University to provide you courses and content on all aspects of GPCR research to support our community. Our first course will be held live on Zoom starting February 8th, 2024 by none other than Dr. Terry Kinakin. For more details, including the registration information, the specific dates, and topics covered, go to the ecosystem at drgpcr.com ecosystem. Spots are limited to 20 participants, and if you decide to join us, you'll get a one-year complimentary Dr. GPCR ecosystem membership. Become a Dr. GPCR ecosystem member and enjoy re-watching all the Dr. GPCR recorded talks during the summit and the symposium. You'll also get access to the video casts of our podcast, and soon you'll have access to a great collection of Dr. GPCR University courses. You can also member, message members privately, network with your community worldwide. We now have launched a monthly payment option for your premium membership. Renew your Dr. GPCR membership for 2024 with a more comfortable option. Are you looking to hire? Are you looking for a job? We've got you covered. Contact our Dr. GPCR chief matchmaker, Mark Schmeisel, to help you either hire the ideal candidate for your company or help you find your next job. I sp sat down and spoke with Mark directly uh, in episode 55 of the, of the Dr. GPCR podcast. If you'd like to get to know him better, go and re-listen to this podcast episode. You can also reach out to Mark at drgpcr.com slash jobs. And now let's dive into this episode. Hi, Paul. Thank you for being here today. So uh, you are currently a professor at the University of California, San Diego. Can you tell me about your background and how you got where you are today? Sure. So I uh, <clears throat> originally trained as a physician. I obtained my MD from the University of Michigan. And I was one of these kids that went through school very fast and ultimately did some training in internal medicine at of uh, the Harvard Medical Unit at Boston City Hospital in the late 60s, actually, and then went to the National Institute of Health for several years and did physiology in people and then biochemistry in uh, a different lab and spent four years there. And then I went, into, went to the University of California, San Francisco, uh, in an area that was then called clinical pharmacology, but what I did was really basic pharmacology and worked with uh, Henry Bourne and, uh, and others and got very involved in molecular pharmacology and ultimately um, went on the faculty at UCSF for about a year and a half and then relocated to the University of California at San Diego, which was a much younger, newer school. I was the first MD hired into what was called the pharmacology division in the Department of Medicine, and I was responsible to do clinical work as well as do research, and that's pretty much what I did for 
most of my career here at UCSD, where I'm now um, distinguished professor of pharmacology and medicine. I don't see patients anymore, but I've continued my research and played a very active role in physician scientist training as the director of a an MD PhD medical scientist training program that I've now been involved with as director for over 30 years. And my research has um, evolved from early studies that, as I said, started out with human physiology and has actually come full circle in a certain way where I've gotten very interested in human beings later in my career, so to speak, in terms of their uh, involvement in molecular mechanisms that I'd been studying, and uh, but spent most of my career studying signal transduction, especially by receptors that activate, uh, regulate cyclic AMP and effects of cyclic AMP through protein kinase A and to a lesser extent EPAC, and um, basically spent a lot of time doing that and looking at both uh, cells in culture and, to some extent, studies in animals, of uh, various animal models. Uh, but early on, also, also did studies on people to try to identify tissues or cells that had receptors that one could study uh, ex vivo from human beings. And that's actually where a lot of our research focuses today, uh, trying to identify GPCRs that are particularly important in uh, certain disease states and unrecognized, previously unrecognized GPCRs that may be physiologically and pathologically important. That's fantastic. And um, during your your career that that has spanned over over a couple of decades by now, when was that moment when you felt like you were catching on to something that was related to GPCRs? When did you get interested in, in GPCRs, and when did you realize that they played a role? Actually, uh, I, I started getting interested in GPCR signaling. We didn't call them GPCRs, and we didn't know about the G part. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I was at the NIH, um, my earliest experiments in, in this regard, were to try to understand cyclic AMP action in the kidney and uh, looking at uh, cyclic AMP binding proteins in renal membranes and ultimately realizing later it was protein kinase A I was probably studying. But, um, but that was sort of, sort of trying to complement other people's work at the National Institute of Health that were looking at hormones that worked through what we now would call GPCRs. And during the um, the latter part of that time, uh, there was the first discovery of the use and discovery of radioligand binding techniques by um, Bob Lefkowitz and Al Gilman and, and others. Um, and I, I witnessed all of that. And I got sort of interested in it. Uh, back before I left the NIH, and then I went to UCSF, and I worked on protein kinase A for about a year. And what actually happened, which is kind of a funny story, I think, I went to um, a, an experimental biology meeting, then called the FASIB meeting, 
in Atlantic City in, I think, 1975. And I had dinner with uh, several people from the lab I was working with, along with Al Gilman, who was uh, then at the University of Virginia. And based on the systems we were working on, we realized we could, uh, we could assess critically what was then a rather um, interesting question. It's sort of a joke now, but it was really interesting at the time. The proposal had been made that the surface receptors for adrenaline or epinephrine or norepinephrine were actually contained the cyclase, adrenal cyclase that was being activated by those receptors, by those um, ligands. And so we had a genetic model at the time that we thought could let us separate them. And so we were sitting around having dinner and someone said, well, someone has to go to Gilman's lab to do these, to take these cells and do these experiments because he's got these radial ligand binding methods. And uh, as it turned out, everybody else was married and had something else they had to do. And they said, looks like you're going to have to go. And I actually kind of leaped at the opportunity and I spent um, a few weeks in Al Gilman's lab getting to know him pretty well and learning radial ligand binding technique. And after that, this was in the summer of 1975, actually. Um, and after that, I was kind of hooked. And I've sort of hung out with uh, what we then, what later became known as GPCRs and their signaling mechanisms and regulation and expression, et cetera, pretty much for the rest of my career. Um, but that was sort of a fluke that, you know, I was a single guy who could go to his lab and do these experiments. Nobody else could do it. So That's fascinating. It was one of those, you know, just, just happened to happen. I happened to be at that dinner and happened to be the guy who was targeted to go, you know. <laughs> at the right time, at the right place, right? Yeah. That's fascinating. And through all these years, um, did you work on a specific GPCR or GPCR family that you would call your favorite GPCR? You know, it's interesting you say that. I saw that was one of your questions. And I um, I thought about it. I thought, you know, actually, I've had, you know, <laughs> I've been married three times. And, <laughs> and, and I've had several loves among my, my GPCRs as well, you know. Uh, and it's really changed. I, I did a lot on adrenergic receptors uh, in the early years. Um, Obviously, Bob Lefkowitz was really dominant in that field, but we made some pretty, I thought, interesting observations about various aspects of adrenergic receptor signaling and expression and function and ligands and things like that to detect them, and uh, studies in animals as well as in, in cell. And, and then I sort of evolved um, over about a decade later. I got very interested in purinergic receptors and worked on those um, quite actively during sort of the, uh, especially during the 90s, late 80s, 90s, into the OOs for a while. I had a, I had a couple of grants to do that, and that was, that was actually very productive with a whole series of collaborators in a lot of different areas, especially as related to the kidney and, and renal function. Uh, and and then I sort of, uh, around about a decade ago or so, I got very interested in a broader question of physiology, which was to ask, well, are we all studying the right thing? And that is, how do we know there aren't other GPCRs that we haven't thought about that are actually really important? And began to wonder 
began to, to actively think about how to use unbiased techniques to identify GPCRs and <clears throat> and uh, got into using a couple got into using initially GPCR arrays and more recently RNA seq and even single cell studies and discovered in effect that uh, there were lots of GPCRs that, that had been missed that were highly expressed in a number of uh, human cells and mouse cells and rat cells and so forth and tissues and really began to ask whether there were differences in disease disease models as well as disease patient samples you now have been actively involved using bioinformatic techniques to look at database data as well as generating a lot of wet lab data from my own lab and so my my current over the last three or four years my favorite my current favorite GPCRs are actually the proton sensing GPCRs, which have not been as well studied and I think are um, going to turn out to be very important both physiologically and pathologically. And uh, that's actually what we're putting uh, most of our efforts in, in my lab in right now, along with some other receptors that are present in certain disease situations, especially as related to cancer. And in particular, pancreatic cancer, where we, we've now identified a whole series of GPCRs that, for which there are approved drugs that we think could be repurposed, uh, assuming that the agonists for those receptors are, and, or those receptors acting alone are able to um, produce aspects of the malignant phenotype, which we have evidence to suggest is the case. So we're hoping to get into the idea of repurposing some already approved drugs for, for cancer, which to help this, this idea that GPCRs can really be part of the cancer story. So I've kind of evolved back into human, human disease more than I was for many years, and um, it's kind of fun way to kind of circle back to where I started. When I first went to the NIH, I actually helped work out some of the details of the glucose clamp technique for studying insulin and glucose action, and... Um, Using do all the experiments were done in humans, and so I'm kind of going back to my roots, if you will, circling back at this point in my career. Fantastic! Um, just to circle back to to the proton sensing GPCRs, um, they're not as well known as the beta adrenergic receptors. What can you tell us about their role physiologically? Well, that's still a work in progress. I mean, um, there are four members of this family. Uh, they've got several different names, uh, GPR4, GPR65, GPR68, GPR132. If you just use the numbers, they have, each have another name, too. And uh, we don't have uh, many drugs that, that attack them, either as uh, agonists or antagonists. There's some allosteric modulators that are, have been described. Um, but it's still, I think, rather... Open field, so to speak, in terms of trying to develop tool compounds for those. Um, the receptors seem to be expressed in settings where you would expect low pH potentially to drive um, functional activities, uh, including in parts of the kidney and in the lung. Um, but pathologically, we've been we we literally stumbled on them. We didn't look for them. They, they, they talked to us rather than the other way around when we did an unbiased series of studies on pancreatic cancer-associated fibroblasts 
And to our amazement, there, the, there was much higher expression of one of those receptors, GPR6TA, on the cancer-associated fibroblasts and in the precursor cells that are um, pancreatic fibroblasts and pancreatic steloid cells, much higher whether you compare it to either one of those. And that led us to develop a whole story around GPR68 as a, a way in which the cancer cells talk to the fibroblasts and tell them to raise 68. And then GPR68 responds to the low pH in the tumor microenvironment and talks back to the cancer cells and almost certainly also stimulates fibrotic activity of the fibroblasts. So it's a positive feedback loop, if you will, that takes advantage of the fact that low pH exists in the in the tumor uh, microenvironment, and it's as if the cancer is using that as a way to help promote its um, survival and growth and proliferation. Yeah, we think it's a really cool concept that um, nature is taking advantage of that, and that, that the proton sensing GPCRs could be really uh, potentially important to drug targets. Uh, one of the other receptors, GPR65, may may also be involved in aspects of this. We're just starting to study that. Um, so, in the context of these proton sensing GPCRs and in can- and their role in cancer, if we were to develop molecules targeting these in this context, we would be looking at antagonizing these receptors. Do I understand this correctly? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. It's as if the low pH is the low hydrogen um, H plus protons are acting as agonists for these receptors, and the idea would be you'd want to antagonize them or have an inverse agonist or a negative allosteric modulator to prevent the uh, and inhibit the activation of these receptors. That is absolutely fascinating. And so you were mentioning that these proton sensing receptors are overexpressed in in cancer cells compared to the native native tissues. Are there other GPCRs that are overexpressed in, for example, pancreatic cancer uh, tissues? Yes. Uh, let, let me restate what you said. You uh, mean the the proton sensing GPCRs are seem to be preferentially expressed in the cancer associated fibroblasts in the tumor microenvironment, generally not in the cancer cells. However, uh, we just published a very large paper in PLOS Biology a a couple months ago in which uh, one of the postdocs in my lab used a bioinformatic approach to compare the expression of of all the GPCRs Um, in in terms of um, uh, the, the not the, the chemo, non the chemosensory GPCRs, but all the, all the others in particular, in 45 different kinds of human cancer, and uh, we showed that actually a large numbers of different kinds of cancer have um, higher expression, in particular, without necessarily mutations very frequently without increasing copy number variation, but very high expression uh, for reasons that have not been well-defined yet, but very high expression on a large number and very diversely in different tumors, different GPCRs, and that um, these, we believe, 
um, all, in many cases, we, there's very good evidence to think that they contribute to the pathophysiology in those cancers. And using even a bioinformatic technique uh, described in our PLUS biology paper, you're able to at least make a, a guesstimate as to which cell types within the tumors are those receptors most likely to be expressed. And some were preferentially expressed on the cancer cells, some were on um, immune cells, some were on the vascular elements, and some were on the fibroblasts. And so um, in each of those different cellular compartments, there may be GPCRs, we believe they could be therapeutic targets for, um, for treating cancer, probably not as a single therapy, but rather as part of a combination therapy um, of cancer. That's kind of what the hypothesis we're working on right now. Wow, and what are the some of the challenges that that you're that are that are faced when when you look at targeting these different GPCRs in the context of of cancer? Oh, well, probably probably the biggest target is getting money. Biggest challenge is getting money <laughs> uh, because, and I'll tell you that there's a lot of prejudice against it. I I feel. I mean, maybe that's too strong a word, but it runs counter to the dominant thinking in the oncology world that it's all about the just the, the mutations that have occurred in the cancer cells and we want to identify those in patients and, and car- target personalized medicine to people because they've got particular mutations. And the GPCRs aren't particularly mutated, but what we think they're still important and they contribute, as we know, GPCRs can regulate metabolism and migration and growth and death and so forth. And so when, when the receptor, in some cases, we find receptors that are 50-fold higher than normal and at very high levels. And we can't, it's sort of hard for us to believe that they're not contributing in some way to the pathologic state. So that's why we're sort of intrigued by trying to, push this idea into the cancer field um, that not only are the chemokine receptors, which have been emphasized a bit, and some others, but there's a large um, number of GPCRs, uh, quite a few of the, of the large GPCR family that we think that, that could be playing a really active role in a large number of cancers. And it's, it's very striking when you start looking at the data critically. And it's just a matter of, of, of getting the challenges to prove that that's the case doing um, experiments, wet lab experiments, if you will. We have a lot of dry lab data that really points to this, but we need to prove it unequivocally and validate these ideas. Um, and that takes uh, money and people and a little bit of time, obviously, and, and correct models to look at that both in, in cell, isolated cells, from patients, if possible, and using experimental animals as well to try to document. So we've had very good success so far in our pursuit of a GPR 68, for example, as I mentioned earlier. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, let's say let's say there is money. There is there are people in the lab working. There are models. Um, what do you think should be the first steps in? targeting some of these GPCRs that are overexpressed in either the cancer cells or the cancer microenvironment? Well, I think what, what one wants to do is to uh, develop appropriate tool compounds if they don't exist. In, in the case, if you have drugs that are already out there, 
you know, we want to get started doing just doing some documentation of the of validity of these receptors that they really are functionally active, that they signal, that they control functional activities in in the different cell types. But then immediately move into animal models. We've discovered in the case of pancreatic cancer, which is the one that we've um, worked mostly on, uh, not exclusively, but mostly on our studies so far, because we think that's such a huge unmet medical need. Because, you know, people only live classically, only about 8% of people are alive within 8 or 9% after five years if you have a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. It's basically a death sentence almost. So we think this is low-hanging fruit. If we can get some drugs that would help make patients better, it would be a real important um, effort. So in order to get that, what we've learned is you really need to take some of the animal models and show the efficacy and ultimately safety of uh, of drugs that you're targeting these GPCRs and seeing they make a difference. And, you know, in one set of experiments that we've done recently, uh, we have found that that there's a mouse model of of pancreatic cancer called KPC that we've had access to. And we've looked at a number of the GPCRs that we see are highly expressed in the human, human cancers are also very highly expressed in the mouse cancer. So that provides for us at least a, a model that we can jump in if you want to take a repurposed drug and say, hey, let's see if we add that drug to the KTC mice. These mice develop a pancreatic cancer spontaneously in six, eight, six to seven weeks. And so can we, can we stop that? Can we slow their growth? Can we prevent the cancer or can we treat it after it comes out? So we're, we're just getting started doing a series of experiments like that. Wow, fascinating. And we're talking about speeding up drug discovery, speeding up uh, discovering compounds to stop progression of cancer. What is your opinion about uh, machine learning, AI-based drug discovery in this context? You know, I don't have a, a good feeling for that, to be honest. I, I'm, it's not clear to me how much one can develop a learning set, training set, and then prove its its utility. Um, people are talking about that in terms of looking at um, <clears throat> different families of, of uh, chemical compounds. Uh, I, I don't have a, I don't really have any experience. We are talking to chemists about ways to explore some of the receptors that we have looked at. We've actually. Um, and are in discussions with people about possibly launching a company around this. Um, and I've talked to a, a couple of chemists who are going to help us. We've got a couple of grants pending on this to NIH. Um, but as far as your question about AI and machine learning, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure yet how that's going to accelerate this aspect of the drug um, drug discovery um development process. I, I just don't have a good feeling for that. I know it's talked about, but in, in this world that I'm living in, I'm just don't, I'm not yet sure how that's gonna be fully useful. Maybe it will. I, I just don't I don't think I can say that right now. Would you would you be willing to to give it a try and, and see if that would accelerate um, drug discovery? Yeah. I, I, I'm just not sure what one would use as the as the starting point for that. Um, 
you know, if you had, I think if you had some compounds that were, that looked like they were decent tool compounds, and you, as opposed to doing, let's say, some actual screening, and you can obviously do some, and so I, I should have said, you can clearly do in silico screening. No question about that. And that's where, but that's not really machine learning or artificial intelligence. That's just brute force computer work to get things to, to bind, if you will, or to interact with the target. Um, so, and, and, you know, most of that work right now is, is heavily dependent on, on good uh, crystal structures or cryo-EM structures that identify particular pockets that may be binding pockets or allosteric <clears throat> modulator pockets, if you will, re regions. And um, in the area that I was mentioning on the proton sensors, I mean, some of the people in the field have, have uh, described doing these kind of in silico attempts to identify drugs that might be uh, useful. And But they had to use the uh, analogy with crystal structures that were out there. We don't have crystal structures of these drugs, that I'm talking, of these receptors I'm talking about. So I think having a crystal structure really allows you to do that kind of thing. So that would be one way in which one can begin to refine and maybe use <clears throat> AI or machine learning to, to come up with the chemical entities that might work. I, I, I just, as I said, I don't have a lot of experience with this, so I'm just sort of fantasizing about it mostly, but Certainly others have used in silico docking, for example, with some success, but I don't, I don't know that they've started with the, what you really need. It really has to be based on a good structure. If you don't have that, I'm not sure how well, how good necessarily your data is going to be. You know, you aren't started with the right substrate, so to speak, if that makes sense. <clears throat> Absolutely. It does make sense. Definitely. Um, Oh, I was thinking about when, when you're when you're mentioning crystal structures, and there is a, an accumulation and a high number of crystal structures that becomes that has become available over the past twenty twenty years. Uh, getting back to the proton sensing GPCRs, what do they look like compared to a beta adrenergic receptor or, um, you know, a, a rhodopsin uh, GPCR example? Like what you hear so far. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now and visit us at drgpcr.com slash podcast. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to my conversation with Paul. There are class A receptors that um, seem to data in the literature indicates mutational data and others that they have these extra cellular sort of histi histidines that are able to create a, a the binding of of hydrogen ions, and and that's sort of how they are able to be activated by protons and uh, in turn uh, undergo conformational changes. I mean, it, it's it's kind of cool because at least in the case of GPR sixty eight, it seems to work. There aren't very many receptors that do what it does, and that is it links both to GQ and to GF. And you know, I know of at least one turinergic receptor that does that. There's a few others, but that's a, that's not that common in the GPCR superfamily. That a GPCR will work to GQ and GS. And our feeling is that some of the responses that have been described in the literature 
uh, for this particular receptor clearly appear to be linked to the GQ activation. In fact, most of them. What we found in the studies we did is it mostly links to the GS activation. So we think it may be possible to develop biased ligands that will, let's say, biased antagonists that will selectively knock down the GS linkage that's linked to the, some of the effects I mentioned in the cancer-associated fibroblasts, whereas some of the other effects that have been described for that receptor in um, the last 18 months or so potentially involved in mechanotransduction and other functional activities, um, you wouldn't mess with that because those seem to be clearly linked to the calcium signal. Fascinating. You had mentioned uh, biased antagonists. In the grand scheme of things for GPCRs in general as drug targets, where do you think the future of biased ligands is? Boy, that's a really, that's a trick question, I think. <laughs> I, think because <laughs> I literally just came from a talk one hour, half an hour ago <laughs> by Laura Bond, who's one of the people who really pushed that idea fairly actively in, in her seminar today as well as in the past. And she stepped back from it and said, you know, it's, it's not as simple as people thought, whether it's just two proteins or beta restin linkage and one bias and not another. And I, I, have, I don't have a lot of uh, strong feelings about this. I, I just, I let that sort of biology guide me in this. And, I, and as I said, in our system, it looks like we do see evidence of the functional activities that we described were mostly GS determined and not GQ. And, um, but I think other data clearly says that GQ can, can do some things and uh, GS uh, doesn't. And so it, at the level of the G proteins, I think there's, there's clearly the segregation, but there's so much we still don't know about that. I mean, you know, what, what is the, proportion of GQ or GS and accessibility to different GPTRs in that case. But in other cases where you see all these multiple um, linkages, you know, what um, Michelle Bouvier refers to as a plural, what's his word he uses? Uh, neurodynamic, I can't think of the exact word, I'm going to the word he always uses. The multiple possibilities. And what are all these determinants of that, you know? and uh, I, I should look up that word because I'm just blanked on it right now, but it's a wordy coin. And I think that uh, one is uh, left with saying, you know, we, we, we don't quite know what are the determinants of, of bias insofar as uh, one can't get that apparently in cells. But, you know, some of the early work from a clinical point of view or a therapeutic point of view really haven't haven't really panned out quite yet. I think people jumped on the bandwagon of that over the last few years, and I'm not sure it's going to be uh, how it's going to play out over time. Um, if, if really bias and, and signaling activation of receptors is really a continuum of confirmations that are induced by agonist ligands, um, how are you going to make sure you really trap one and not another? How are you going to block, clearly block one and not get some of the other? I, I think there's a lot of tricky questions that haven't been well resolved yet. 
Absolutely. I agree. Plus, if you want to add a layer of complexity over there, you have changes in GPCR and, and, and transdu- transdu- signaling transduction intracellular components that change from tissue to tissue to cell to cell. So it, it's, it's a tricky. Exactly. I totally, totally agree. You have this, you know, each cell is different. I mean, I, I think the one thing that I would just argue about, argue for, I should say, and this is actually, I started thinking this way early in my career. I got a little burned for this, but I think people have, have in science and in this area, particularly, there's been a reductionism on how people study it. I want to make a purified receptor. I want to see what are the minimal number of components that can activate. I want to get a crystal structure. But maybe to do that, I have to make mutations to stabilize it. So we learn things about more purified components and what they can do in isolated environments. But I, ever from the beginning, early in my career, when I first started studying receptors, I said, what goes on in intact cells? How do intact cells handle this? And, you, you know, you know, intact cells have all the GTP there. People can really study all these states that are transient by depleting GTP and or having GDP there when they do binding and membranes and purified proteins reconstituted and stuff. So I've always wondered about what's going on in native cells. And I think that's always been my concern about how um, I once said, you know, Someone once told me that, you know, if you ask a biochemist, how does a television work? He would probably take a, a, a wrecking ball to the television and then take all the little pieces of the glass and the other parts and try to piece them back together. Because that's what, that's what the reductionism reconstitution model says of science. And yet, it's like, you know, understanding the brain by just understanding a neuron. Well, you know, you can understand how the neuron works, so how do they all work together? Which is why, you know, the Brain Initiative is talking about circuitry now, because you at least got to talk about more than one neuron working together and stuff. I mean, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit, but I, but my, my thinking is we got to think about how, how the whole cell, how whole cells do their thing and how, 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 what's that environment different, whether it be the glycocalyx that's on the outside of the cells, whether it's the, the, organization within the membrane and the interaction with the cytoskeleton. These are all parts of how a cell works that we all strip away most of that stuff to try to understand how the receptor works. And I think and I think science going forward, I, I would suggest it's going to have to take if you really want to understand how it works in vivo, you're going to have to really take those things into account and figure out how to methods and approaches for assessing in, in native environments that can be then changed by development of disease uh, and, and other phenomena in the environment. You know, absolutely, I agree with you. Speaking of the future, um, <clears throat> what would be your advice to young scientists that are aspiring to work in the GPCR field? Well, I think it, it, the most important thing is to, to get a good training and education about, about science. And don't get too narrow too fast. You, you have to get narrow to understand a particular problem in your research. But read widely. Think about the connections with things that other people aren't thinking about. 
I, I, I've always felt like one of my strengths, if I have, if I have many, is is to to try to see things from looking at different areas. I read in different fields, not just the GPCR field, and I've tried to bring to bear some of those ideas on um, the GPCR field as they become operative in other in other areas, and both in terms of methodology and um, and questions. And I think to the extent that people should keep open minds, I, I think our training of a lot of, of young people today, it's, it's almost, it's too narrow for them to be able to think creatively, I think, in the future, because they, they, they learn everything about this one little narrow field, but, you know, people outside that field, they, they don't, if they don't learn about what's outside, I think the future is going to be for people who can work at the interface of, of disciplines and who can understand how they don't have to just be necessarily be a member of a team, but, but they, they really, to make real contributions, I think you have to, to think as creatively as possible and not sure our funding system and our training is optimizing for that skill. Ironically, this is slightly off target, but I went yesterday. I was in Los Angeles uh, for my granddaughter's sixth birthday party, and it was held at a at a place called Imaginology, and it's to teach kids to teach kids about science, and it was really cool. And I got to talk at length with the owner of this place of how how can we interest kids in asking questions that aren't just observing. But doing experiments, even as, as elementary school kids, to to develop a love of science and thinking creatively and imaginably, imaginably, and it really it was kind of inspiring to think that there are people putting together places like this to try to get the next generation of men, especially women and minorities, to create the diversity. I mean, people in NIH is trying to come up with all these strategies. What they really have to do is take a long-term strategy, in my opinion, and start looking at younger people and getting them fired up for science and the creative process. And thinking about what I'm saying, ask questions about a variety of things that are not just in, this, in a narrow area. So I don't know. I'm, that was my, being on my um, podium. Well, happy birthday to your granddaughter, first of all. To circle back to, to your comment about young scientists and what they should be looking at, and also to the fact that in order to understand how GPCRs work, I think there is a parallel to be drawn where you work on a GPCR or a mutation and you spend four years to try to crystallize that one GPCR instead of being able to you know, look up from the bench and get an idea on what's going on in the tissue with that native receptor. I think I, I can... I can see a parallel in that. Um, so you had mentioned in the beginning that um, you had moved on from, you went, we were at NIH, you were in Michigan to do your uh, MD. Um, throughout your entire career, are there, were there any moments, two to three aha moments that, that you know, shine that light, light, turn on that light bulb and you said, well, maybe this is what I should be doing, other than that dinner um, at the table with the Dr. Kevin? Yes. Yeah, no, that, well, that actually started, and then when we got our first uh, data showing that, uh, yeah, you know, that cells that, that at the time we thought lacked 
triclase, which turned out to lack G protein or GS protein, had excellent ligand binding to the beta receptor, proved unequivocal. Aha, receptor cannot be the same as as a key post-receptor component, which is what had been proposed by a Nobel laureate before that. And his his coterie of, of, of protégés. And so I that was, for me, that was kind of an aha moment. And I think the, the, the most, probably the biggest aha moment in at least the last decade for me has been um, the uh, observation when... Um, a postdoc in my lab brought the first data uh, regarding GPCR expression in a normal cell type. And I looked at, the, I said, well, who, which receptors are the highest expressed? And the receptor that was the most highest expressed was um, was PAR1, the thrombin receptor, protease activated receptor 1. And so I did what anyone would do. I said, well, let's look what's known about that. And the answer was nothing. Here's a receptor that nature decided to put at the highest level in these particular cells, and no scientist had ever really studied it. There was one paper in neonatal cells. But I thought that was for me. I literally had considered that um, when I said, you know, I bet you this receptor has got functional activity, and nobody's ever studied it, really. And, in fact, that was the case. And that's actually been a big um, drive for me for the last, so well, that happened, you know, about eight, seven or eight years ago, eight, maybe eight, eight years ago. And I think since then, I've been really thinking more and more about what, you know, I've jokingly said in, in seminars, the unknown unknowns. We don't know what we don't know. And, and I think that's been a real driver for how I've approached the last several years of my scientific effort with, in a number of different cell types, I would point out, not just the cancer story. but And we haven't published a lot of it yet. We're just starting to get some of it out now. But um, but I, I really think that that's, that you got to keep an open mind that it's not all what we, you know, the beta receptor is the beta receptor. There's a huge amount known about this, you know, thousands of papers, but the receptor may not be a paradigm for other receptors, and maybe it's not even as important as other receptors that nature has put in a cell and that are that are contributing both to functional activity and to disease. And if that's the case, we gotta change our focus. And so that was I think that's those two things, but you know, those were a couple of things that for me were really um inspirational, if you will, aha moments as you call them. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, conclusion. If, if just just to go back to to the beginning of the discussion, the conclusion is GPCRs, as we all know, that they're complex. They're difficult to study. We need more tools to study them. But at the same time, they're fascinating. And um, I think we we have a great a great future and a lot of people who are interested in in uncovering these these mysteries such as the par one receptor that you had mentioned if nature put it there it must have a function well that's why i was going to just say to, to add on to your lovely statement you just made you I mean i mean the, the the nature decided for reasons that none of us will ever probably know for sure that gpcr should be the largest receptor membrane family and there's, it's a huge family. We still there's lots of orphans. We don't understand what they do, why they're there, what controls them, da da da. 
So there's plenty of work to do on, on things. And, you know, needless to say, when we looked at the receptor expression in tissue, some of those orphans are way highly expressed. And so you can't believe that they're there just to be vestiges of another time. And, you know, I think there's a, there's still a lot to be learned on these this family. And it's people focus on one or another because that's how you have to do science. But but more broadly, as a, as a super family, it's incredibly important. And I think we just need to begin to re, rethink how... Um, what what's really important functionally and and especially in disease i think there's some really going to be some great opportunities both for understanding both pathophysiology but also therapeutics from that that that's that's what's driving me in this phase of my career absolutely absolutely thank you again paul for being here today if you have any job openings um in your lab where can we find these uh that's a good question. People should write to me. <laughs> All right. And then uh, as the last question, uh, what are the hot conferences surrounding GPCRs and your, your project that you're working on uh, that you would recommend to young scientists to attend to this year? Yeah, I, you know, I'm co-chairing a GPCR colloquium that's going to be at the Experimental Biology Meeting on April third uh, and fourth in San Diego, uh, just before the experimental biology EB 2020 meeting. And there's going to be some really terrific speakers and a number of people put in posters and I've read the poster titles at least and know what the topics are. And I think it's going to be a really excellent meeting. It's, it's being run by the Pharmacology Society aspect of along with the Physiology Society, APS, American Physiological Society. And a number of companies are, have uh, contributed, and there'll be people there from a variety of small small companies, especially, uh, who are GPCR-focused. And I think it's going to uh, be... First, the plenary address is going to be by Brian Kobilka, of course, who won the Nobel Prize in 2012 uh, for his work on GPCRs. And, um, but there's a lot of other excellent excellent talks will be there. Uh, I think there's going to, I've just learned there's a Keystone meeting that's going to be held uh, later in the year, but it's going to be in Shanghai, I believe, or in China. But it's going to be very structurally oriented. It doesn't look like there's a lot of functional stuff. The meeting I just described to you has a little bit of everything. The one I just described, um, the colloquium is going to have some stuff on structure, but also a lot of stuff on functioning orphans and lots of different things, even though it's only a one-day pre-meeting. Um, uh, and there's, you know, sometimes the, the, the Gordon Conference in um, it, what's called Molecular Pharmacology, and it's it's really um, G-protein-coupled receptors. It's typically held um, every other year, and in, it was held last year here in the United States, and Every other year, it's either in the United States or Europe. It's, I believe it's going to be in Europe next year, uh, probably in May, usually is when it's held. So it's about a year from now. That's a great way to learn what's really going on in the GPCR field. I, I chaired that meeting at one point several years ago, and uh, it's always very well attended by a really international group of, of scientists. 
the Keystone meetings. Actually, I, I think I chaired the first Keystone meeting on GPCRs a number of years ago. And as I said, it's evolved to be mostly about structure now, but but that doesn't really has has been historically a really a good meeting too. So those are those are a few I think coming up in the next uh, let's say fifteen months or so. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If I can add to that, there is uh, the annual GPCR, Great Lakes GPCR meeting. Oh, I was going to mention that. Thank you for mentioning. Yes, the Great Lakes meeting is a good meeting, too. I've been there once. I've only been there one time, but yeah. That's usually a great meeting. Last year was the 20th. Um, anniversary of the meeting, and we had Brian Kobilka and Bob Lefkowitz, both uh, Nobel Prize laureates, come and, and give a talk. It was fascinating. Oh, great. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good meeting. It's an enjoyable meeting. There's, I think there's some of the smaller meetings like that, or the, the GPCR Colloquium, or the Gordon Conference, or the Keystone, those are, I think, uh, really great venues. But there's also a lot of really good stuff on GPCRs at the almost every year at the experimental biology meeting. So I think people from my lab often will go there because that's actually a good place. All right. Thank you so much for the discussion and for the great suggestions. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I hope I was able to um, inspire the young and get more information out on GPCRs and the fascinating work that you're doing in your lab. Well, I hope it works out. I mean, I think it's a cool idea. I think it might just inspire young people in the field, and I'd love to see that happen. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We thank our guest, our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Monserrat, Ivana, Andrein, Balint. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Join us and sign up for the Dr. GPCR University course starting February 8th with Dr. Terry Kinakin. The deadline for registration is February 1st, 2024. When you register to the course, you will get a one-year complimentary access to the Dr. GPCR Premium uh, membership. I hope you can join us. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.